0: Welcome to this week's episode of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. My guests this week are David Bidler and Lex Clark of Physiology First. We discuss how we can better leverage our own innate physiology and how that can directly benefit our mental, emotional, and physical health. We discuss stress and how stress is a necessary input. And by deriving optimal inputs of stress, one can derive the desired adaptations. We discuss the downside of chronic stress and how better to find balance and control. We end the conversation by discussing neuroplasticity and learning. David and Lex share several interesting perspectives on how better to optimize practices for learning. This truly was a stimulating conversation. I love how David and Lex have brought physiology and the body and brain to the forefront of the conversation on learning. Without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host Jesse Curtis, and I'm lucky enough to be blessed with two guests today: David Bidler and Lex Clark of Physiology First. Super excited to sit down with you guys. How's it going? Well,
1: first off, we feel blessed. Yeah. Um, we,
0: we're so deeply grateful for the chance to share our work to connect with you today. So thanks for going webinar well and here in, in Freeport, Maine. Awesome. Up in Maine, how is it right now? The transition of seasons. Is it still kind of cold up there? Has it been crazy up there?
2: A little bit yeah we're just we're starting to get all the sunshine back and we're starting to get outside a lot more and that's been amazing to see for our community here just everybody getting jazzed about being back outside
1: i'll tell you one thing jesse when you think about physiology first watching a winter turn to spring it's huge. and watching the impact on mood the entire community changes the vibe changes and it makes us wonder what if we could unpack why how does sunlight affect physiology and mood how does weather affect physiology and mood What are the learning experiences embedded in the changing of the seasons?
2: Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I heard this morning from everybody who came in to the gym um, for our morning class, um, everybody was just like, I went on a late walk last night because daylight savings happened. And after dinner, it usually is dark. And so they were like, I actually got to get out and enjoy like the sunshine and a little bit of heat. And it made such a huge difference in just the way that they walked in in the morning, they were energetic, they were happy, they were excited. It was really cool to see.
1: Nature is the ultimate, you know, lesson in physiology.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can completely agree with that. Like uh, in Louisiana, you know, I'm way down at the bottom of the map down here. It's really hot most of the time. Weather's kind of crazy all over the place. It'll get really cold, really hot. But one of my things that I really like to do in the morning, and I've spoke about on my podcast, is observing the sun early on, as soon as I wake up, like I have nice big windows out in front of my house. and I like to look out, observe the sun. And I don't know, like I, it's just an opportunity to slow down, take things in. And it's a great starting point for the day. And the way I have to drive to work and the way that I have to come home is always looking at the sun. Uh, so I always enjoy that. Like That's kind of like my moment to kind of just let things go, because we know things can get very sporadic and all over the place in our modern day and age.
1: Well said. And to the power of the The sun and morning light, you know, so many of the things I I think we'll touch on today are those simple elements of how understanding sunlight, hydration, breathing, movement, how they compound to feeling powerful, capable, you know, ready in our bodies.
0: Let's talk about first what physiology first is and then what you guys goals are and kind of how you're pushing towards those things. So just kind of give the audience a better understanding about what you guys are pursuing in the current and kind of what your model is for the future as well.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, Physiology First, you know, pragmatically, it is a nonprofit organization based here in Freeport, Maine. And our mission is to redefine how we approach youth mental health. How do we have a 21st century conversation about the health of the mind that inspires the next generation of leaders? And we take a three pronged approach to to bringing this work to life. We partner with neuroscientists looking at the leading edge research on breathing and the brain. Um, We partner with schools, people who are running, you know, this curriculum into the schools every day with hundreds of kids there's this ripe opportunity to embed physiology-based education into the existing infrastructure and then we have a, a decentralized approach to saying okay if it can't get into the school if it isn't in the school let's make sure it's in the neighborhood so we have a decentralized learning platform where people can take the curriculum and they can run it into their neighborhoods and they can bring it to local organizations schools gyms communities parks And make sure that we're meeting the next generation of leaders with the tools that they need, wherever they are, and making this an intergenerational conversation on sharing skills for the future that help us feel prepared. And most importantly, feel inspired for the future itself.
2: Exactly. That was a huge goal of being able to create intergenerational connection with students, with adults. I mean, I know that personally, I'm I'm a student myself. I'm uh, getting my doctorate in physical therapy right now, but I was only really introduced to this idea of community when I was at the end of my high school career, started my college career, and the impact it can make to start to learn from people in your community, somebody who's maybe 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, and just see what life looks like at those different junctures, you know, what their experiences were, being able to share some of that, being able to really connect with somebody, maybe outside of your general circle, so that you have the opportunity to learn these life lessons that aren't always, you know, present right there.
1: Absolutely. We just had an amazing, uh, amazing couple, Ed and Jan Geary, in their 80s leave uh, leave our training center this morning. And you think of the wisdom and the power and the lessons that they possess. And, and the model of some of the most vibrant, enthusiastic, passionate, alive human beings. And we ask, well, maybe one of the things that we're doing in education right now is we're missing the critical opportunity for intergenerational mentorship. Why aren't why do why aren't 16-year-olds learning with 80-year-olds? Because here at our campus, they are. And they're learning in a peer-to-peer way because there's so much for teens to teach. And there's so much for our, you know, our elders to pass on. And it makes us wonder as we think of new models for 21st century education, our model is to put physiology at the base of the educational process. What would it be like to learn about us before we tried to learn about every other thing in the world? And then part of that model is, why isn't this intergenerational? Why aren't we sharing between generations the wisdom and the lessons and the challenges and the opportunities that a 16-year-old right now in 2022 may be experiencing? And maybe the the 70 and 80-year-old in their community has a kind of answer and we've separated them out completely. Mm -hmm. And we've built a hierarchical top-down approach to the sage on the stage, sharing the information instead of all of us kind of getting on the stage of life together and having a conversation.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the things mentioned there are going to flow really nicely throughout the conversation. The fact that it's OK to step outside of the box and to look into the box and and have a, a larger view, like to remove yourself from the situation and to think about the big things uh, like you talked about hierarchy and how things are structured. I've been uh, reading The Master and His Emissary, and there, there's things I really like about the book. And then there's, you know, there's times where I'm just like, it just it gets so philosophical, right? Uh, and I want kind of the neuroscience approach to things sometimes. But looking at like the components and how we separate and compartmentalize everything and kind of how we have built over time uh, these systems which we feel so locked into um, almost like it's inescapable right so Mm -hmm. to kind of establish what you kind of touched on briefly there let's talk about what we feel like the priorities of our current education system are and how perhaps they're not meeting what you talked about the human uh, side of uh, aspect of things
1: Well, you know, it seems to us from our perspective here in our Freeport community, as we've worked with youth and with the school systems here in Maine and then with school systems beyond, we partner with schools globally. And it seems like right now, the honest truth is that the priority for the school system is abject survival. How do I survive? Not how do I thrive? And that's fine. But if we're going to inspire a generation to thrive, if we're going to put on the map of potential a future that feels worth living into, then maybe the key critical lesson from 2020, maybe perhaps the learning experience, the collective learning experience of many of our lives so far. What is it like when the whole world stops at a dime? You enter a pandemic together and you get a chance to almost say, it's like we've gotten a flat tire on this road that we were speeding down at 110 miles an hour. We have a moment to reflect and ask, are we going in the right direction? And I think there was a collective moment when a lot of people, even you know, in traditional education said, wait, We might be going down the wrong road, and we've just been moving so fast, we didn't take a look around. And then it seemed like the priority, almost immediately, was fixing the flat and heading right down that road (laughs) at at the same clip. And it seems like learning, learning at at its essence, is being able to say, is this producing the desired result, and if not, what will? So until we can ask, what is the desired result of U.S. education? Is it collectively a national daycare system? Is it meant to be um, a training grounds for the next generation of our nation's leaders? What is its point? Then we can ask, what is the goal? And it feels like right now, the priority in education is staying afloat without any um, deeper conversation on the direction that we're actually floating towards. Because the seas of the 21st century are gonna be pretty turbulent. We might wanna orient ourselves towards a position of clarity, that assures that we can navigate young people out of a current mental health crisis and into positions of purpose, mission, value, and leadership. Yeah, I
2: think the biggest thing that I hear from students and I even echo the sentiment is, it feels like education, like you're kind of just getting prepped for the next stage in education. So like in middle school, you're thinking about high school. In high school, you're thinking about college. In college, you're probably thinking about grad school at this point. You know, there are these next preparations for like the next education, but then, you're, at some point, hopefully you're, you're done with edu- like you're done with education in the school sense. So now you're out in the world. And how do you navigate that? What have you learned from your years and years of education to be able to use in the world? And sometimes it feels like you're rocking the boat a little bit when you step out into that because you're just like, wait, maybe even the deepest lesson for me was like, wait, how do I actually learn without a textbook, without a teacher? There's so much to learn. There's so much changing in the 21st century, which can be nerve wracking, but exciting. What do I do with that? How do I make sure that I leverage what's at my hands so that I can perform at my best, reach my goals and help everybody along the way? That's something I hear a lot from students as well.
1: And one thing we always encourage students to do is to question the business model behind all things, because if you can think about a street smarts approach to understanding the future that we're living into, what is the business of education? If we can understand the business, the revenue model, why it's there, then we can understand whether we're a product or whether we're actually producing a shared vision for something new. If education were to be stripped down, if we if we hadn't done it yet, would we build it the same way? And a different question is: if we had done it, it produced the current result, and then we could rebuild it. Would we rebuild the same thing? Hmm. And I don't know a teacher, a student, or a parent who would say, Yeah. So the question becomes, how do you? pose the critique without pointing the finger because teachers like you are on the ground every day. And it's very easy to have a big vision of the reinvention of education and then say, wait a minute, I have a classroom packed with kids and some of them are anxious and some are stressed and some are arguing and some are hungry and some are exhausted. And I have to get them through a lesson plan that produces a desired result. So I think the question around the incentivization structure is what is the purpose of education? And if we can at least get some clarity on that, maybe we can begin to reshape different models to meet different aims within a broad educational system that now includes education technology. So now there isn't only
0: one option in the room. There there are multiple. Something that was going through my mind as you were speaking, as you guys were talking about this, something we'll touch on later is neuroplasticity. And I'll bring in some things about, you know, learning versus performance. And the thing is, I feel like the problem is, we're saying that we want to learn, but most often, like you talked about incentivizing things, we're actually wanting school performance because, again, that gets back to the incentive of thing. And and learning and performance are not the same. Uh, I've seen you guys po- post from uh, Huberman a lot, and on his podcast, he clearly stated that you want to fail multiple times to actually learn the most effective processes behind things, right? So it doesn't mean that this thing that we're kind of I guess, ideally building today or discussing today is going to be perfect, not checkered with failure. We want kids to experience things and not to be pre- preached towards a model all the time, like like you talked about the sage standing on the stage kind of preaching, uh, rather than learning in a community setting where failure is actually encouraged because it's better to fail in the smaller things than the larger, uh, grander things Down whenever performance matters, right? But looking at My experience in public education, I feel like performance is just preached towards so much uh, and learning is kind of put on the back burner. Failure should be encouraged. Um, And it doesn't mean that you just preach towards, oh, it's okay to fail. We want to succeed but we want to learn. And failure is a natural process within that. Uh, Also, you speaking about the uh, times 2020 and uh, the COVID shutdowns and everything, that was really a shift in my paradigm as a person as well. I've never got to spend that much time at home. And I can seem extremely isolated, you know, but I actually got to spend more time with my son who was like, a year old, you know, and I never would, never was, I'm always away from home. I'm a coach, I'm a teacher, uh, athletic trainer. Uh, So it was a time for me to connect with my son and also a time for me actually to study things, you know, like that we're talking about today. So it was a great learning process for me. Uh, There's obviously a lot of blowback and fallout from that uh, in different directions, depending on how each person responded to that. I just feel like as a society, we just weren't ready for that moment. I live in a rural area and we didn't have the technological means to really, truly continue instruction, meaningful instruction whatsoever during that time, even if we wanted to. So that's just something else that was going through my mind as well. I think
1: that one of the most dangerous things that can happen
0: is if the educational
1: system kills the love of learning, it is the ultimate failure. And so that might be, you know, to your point, the question that we want to ask is, at the end of the day, you graduate and you're in the school of life and you've taken one thing with you. Is it a deep love for the learning process? Because then as the world changes exponentially, you'll always have in your back pocket love for the art of learning. And if we lose that and if we kill that, I had a very untraditional um, educational experience. I left school in the eighth grade so I had to ask myself growing up in New Jersey, on the streets, out of school in eighth grade, well, I wonder what I should learn so that I don't end up, I don't know, dead or in jail. To learn specific things. And it occurred to me through the, my own growth and development that if I learned about me, I might have a fighting shot at making it out of the neighborhood I was in and learning about other things. And through the process developed a love. And when I, when I coach young people, one thing we're always looking for is, is the love of learning. Think of it as a candle is it blazing mm-hmm. or is it, is it being diminished? And if it's being diminished, how do we set it on fire again?
2: Yeah. I think the juxtaposition of your experience uh, like this, what would be a traditional school experience, not being that um, what you went through, but what I went through. Um, it's so interesting. Cause when I met you, like you were, he would read so many books. He was listening to so many podcasts and at that point. I was so ingrained in like, well, I just do what I have to do at school and then everything else is kind of, you know, If I really want to, maybe I'll go listen to a podcast or I'll read. I lost that fire. I lost that interest in learning about new things and something that all of us are aware of, especially since 2020, just how quickly things are changing technologically, you know, how the landscape keeps on changing and the ability to stay on top of that and have a fire to learn about it and have a fire to want to stay on top of it is really a gift and something that I found I had to rebuild. Like you just get locked in this state of like, okay, well, I go to school, I get told what to read, I get told what to write, I get told what to follow versus like, what, what am I actually interested in? What can I, how can I break out of that and start to really apply maybe what I was supposed to learn in school to a larger
1: picture? And there's a quote that comes to mind from Naval Ravikant that I think about often. And the quote was, you know, if education were about learning, then the internet would obsolete it. So education is about credentialing. And if I'm reading a a peer reviewed research journal article in a school or outside of the school, the information is there. And if 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 the passion is there to turn that into something of value, it doesn't change or diminish the quality of the information. So the questions we ask about the future, I think uh, when we work with young people, because a large part of thinking about the landscape of youth mental health, you start with physiology, but having no preparedness to enter the economy, to meet your goals, to be sustainable, well, that should produce great pangs of anxiety and maybe even an existential kind of depression in terms of purpose, relevance, and and a future plan. So we ask that question, you know, we ask that question often and really work to get young people, you know, thinking along those lines.
2: Yeah, and fundamentally, I mean, like so much of what we're going to dive into today around physiology, around the body, the brain, the mind. I didn't get to learn a lot of this until college and even actually even more in depth grad school. And I'm so lucky that my passion brought me towards learning about the body because I'm going towards medicine. But if I'd been going into like accounting, I might not have ever run into this information. And that's that's not a great thing because we are all humans. And if we know more about ourselves, our internal environment, we can kind of execute and do what we need to do in any external environment.
1: Because one of the questions of the future, I think, is are the credentials accepted? Will the companies of the future accept the credential as valid? There's a quote by Balaji Saravasi. His mind is just sparkling in terms of the future of education. And he said, the great educational flippening is happening. And maybe soon signaling that you went to a specific university that signaled a sign of a capability and intelligence may in fact signal the opposite. So what does that mean? What happens when the credential that you've invested in doesn't get turned in for the job? Will the top companies, will the startups, will the nonprofit organizations, will the game changers and the pioneers of the future what kind of learning will they be looking for from you? And will it be that innate hunger and passion to acquire information and turn it into purpose? And if that's what they're looking for, does school provide it? And I wonder if, and I would love your thoughts on that, but I wonder if that becomes the fundamental question. Do people graduate with the love and the fire of learning burning like an inferno? Or is it extinguished? We may be asking and answering whether we're actually setting up the next generation for success or a kind of failure where they have a degree that they can't exchange for value.
0: I can directly connect to what you're kind of speaking to. I've, I spent a lot of time going after different degrees that I don't use at all. Uh, currently, I had to go back and get a alt cert for uh, teaching. Uh, so I just spent a lot of time in the educational system, chasing something whenever I didn't know myself, like kind of what we're going to speak about here in a little bit. I didn't know what I wanted, but once I figured out I love athletic development. I love allowing and teaching people to be strong and fast and and to believe in themselves and be the best that they can be. Uh, I love those different things. So I begin to research in that more. But again, we don't encourage people to kind of look at, jump into different topics, explore and try and find what lights you on fire. It took me until I was in my late 20s going into my 30s to figure that out, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but that's just the way it is. But I can speak to myself as a product of the educational system like that. And it's it's to my own doing too. We have to find those things ourselves. We have to find ourselves as well. Uh, but I can kind of speak to the credentialing process, a lot of that null and void uh, along the way. And, you know, I kind of wonder the same thing. So let's jump over to kind of connecting to our body and figuring out who we are, because I feel like that's a great starting point. And then we can get into other specific topics, such as stress and neuroplasticity from there. So let's talk about the mind body connection, connecting to who we are. Some of the most simple ways uh, that you can get people kind of looking within themselves. Firstly,
1: Lex and I both co-own a performance training center called the distance project, the distance project trains athletes from five years old to 83. And then adjacent to it, next to it, the same building is the Physiology First University campus, where we've really worked to build a new model for putting Physiology First and community health education um, out there in an accessible, fun way. So the first entrance point in from both buildings is take your shoes off. Everybody trains barefoot. We trained barefoot. We have for five or six years. Can I feel the ground beneath my feet? And you see people's sensory awareness and proprioception increase immediately. No one's wearing shoes. And then we're doing things like basic warm ups. Okay, we're going to practice nasal breathing in the warm up. People suddenly are in tune to their physiology. There is suddenly, it's an expedited path to interception, meaning an awareness of internal state. And when those things become normal, they don't have to think about them. People kick their shoes off. We're, we're training with nasal breathing. What you realize is that a lot of the messaging, especially in the online world right now, treats young people, especially, but people in general, as if they're fragile. As if you move too fast, if you, if you, if you introduce a breathing exercise, it isn't exactly a, a correlation to their CO2 tolerance. If you don't treat people with kit gloves, you're going to break them. But the reality from our experience is when you can remove those barriers and get people to feel like a human animal together in space, moving, sweating, and breathing, this instinctual return to our own power is universal. We've had Dozens and dozens and dozens of students visit uh, the center and countless come to the gym in entire classrooms from local high schools. And as soon as their feet hit the ground, as soon as they're connected to their breath, as soon as they're moving in unison, and as soon as you normalize some of the more um, in-depth exposures to physiological interoception, like the ice bath, we have a lot of our students using an ice bath, we're putting a sauna out back. All of a sudden, the connection between learning and the body and the fact that training can be the most in-depth educational experience. We'll never learn about our physiology from a textbook. You know, we could read them all, and we've, I'm sure all of us have read a lot, but until you experience your physiology in action through the art and act of movement, you don't see the lights come on in their eyes. So our first step is literally getting sensory awareness, barefoot training, nasal breathing, and making sure that every component of the lesson, whether it's a workout or an actual lecture, has a key critical principle and then a lot of application, smiles, laughter, play, and human connection. If you embed that, the learning process is just, just, you're just putting gasoline in the best possible way to get this inferno of want to learn blazing in their
2: minds. Yeah. And, you know, putting that on the map of potentials is so important because I just actually finished up my first clinical experience for getting my doctorate in physical therapy. And what I saw is a lot of people coming in who had experienced injuries or maybe were experiencing discomforts, but they were really self-limiting. They didn't know what was on the map of potentials Mm. physically, mentally, how they could really, I mean, find a new level of performance for themselves. And it was hard because I couldn't always put somebody, like, you know, I'm young, I'm in my 20s. And so when I tried to say that to them, they'd be like, well, you don't get it. I'm old. Like, I'm, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70. They're just like, you don't understand yet. But I was like, I want to bring in, you know, Ed and Jan and just show them, like, this is actually, this is the potential to really feel good in your body, to move in these ways. And then taking that a step further and connecting with other humans, connecting in a the community. These are all these necessary pieces of the puzzle for us to feel good.
1: You know, it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And the height of experience is only as high as we've experienced feeling amazing, powerful and connected in our bodies. And it seems like culture ultimately writes the story of health because biology has written an alternate story to the culture that's quite inspiring. And biology says you can in fact wake up and feel interconnected, amazing, energetic, passionate, driven, alive. That's the biological story, meaning people have done it. We can train to access it.
0: Yeah.
1: And then maybe culture writes another story and says, you know what? Who can feel good in a time like this? I'm anxious and stressed. I'm down and depressed. The world is a mess. We're all going to. And then what we, what, we can have, what we can do then is we can say, well, what story about human biology do I want to believe? Yeah. Because biology is the story that the world tells about us and culture is the story that we tell about the world. And when we can go back and say, okay, is it possible to feel amazing, thriving, energetic as like a biological organism, waking up grateful and blessed? Yeah, it's possible. People have done that. What's the roadmap? Or do we eliminate that from the story? And I think as we talk about youth mental health, you can teach all the breathing exercises, you can optimize nutrition, you can get people lifting weights, you can do all this stuff. But if the cultural story isn't an inspired future that they have agency in building, Then we're going to build a kind of automaton we've worked with young people who are good athletes but they weren't inspired so it's almost like what is the intersection of physiology and purpose and is that the place that we need to look if we're thinking about redefining the mental health and upgrading helping out young people upgrade their mental health for the you know wild turbulent couple of years that are only going to get wilder i think there's a cultural narrative that says we're going to return to a normal it's like no we're not we're going to exponentially accelerate into pure chaos (laughs) what, what, <laughs> or, when where when's the know.
0: last time that we've been normal though? If if we're being honest, like you know, yeah. I, I'm really interested. Two different ends of the spectrum. I think I was listening to uh, Primal Kitchen and all those different things. Uh, he's he's a Paleo person. Oh God, um, Mark um, Mark Season or something yeah, something like too. that. Uh, but. <laughs> I love all of his stuff. Right. And he was talking about it's amazing that we're leveraging all these technologies that are so far removed from our ancestral roots. But these technologies are actually bringing us closer to our ancestral roots um, and to understanding them, which is kind of some of the things that you're speaking to there. I'm thinking from the lens that I typically approach things, athletic development and athletic development is not really the optimal format of living like you at your highest athletic peak is not like a sustainable thing. So the first thing I want to say is that me working with adolescents frequently, I want to teach them to be humans first and to experience themselves as a human and also to be able to leverage just health in general before that they can actually perform athletic means okay yes we want to win ball games and we win a lot of ball games but by teaching people how to move and leverage movement and be creative I just feel like you're setting people up for uh, more resiliency in the future if you just if you just kind of again make a hierarchy of movement and you move young people towards athletic means and development solely I feel like you're missing out on so much so I loved a lot of the things that you guys threw out there about play and barefoot uh, sensory awareness and breathing because you you spoke kind of like you've worked with athletes but you'll see sometimes they don't have that fire within their eyes because mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's been driven out of their body because there's so much, it's, it's like the school system, go, 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 go. And less, yeah. and less true experience. Everything has just been, even within sports, uh, you see, you see kids on the road playing six, seven days a week, uh, certain sports. And I'm just like, where is the joy in that? Like, wh- where are you, when do you have time to be a kid and to experience and to go play and to make up a game? Right.
1: Right. It's
0: such, such a beautiful
1: point. I mean, I worked, um, Worked a lot with endurance athletes. You know, my, my background athletically is ultra marathon racing. I've done several hundred mile races, a two hundred mile race, and and I look at the physiology of that. And what I think happens is, you know, there's a line when athleticism becomes addiction, and I mean on a purely neurochemical level, right? So you have this beautiful process set in place by nature where you begin to move, and the endocannabinoid system kicks in, and you go, oh, I feel good when I do this, and then you ultimately upregulate baseline levels of dopamine and serotonin. And then you set in those mood regulating neurotransmitters with this reward driving neurotransmitter towards a goal. And the goal is scary. I'm going to run a hundred miles and you are, you are as driven as anything's been driven and you can't stop thinking about it. And you're training for it. You get your, your, pack, your shoes, your gear, trekking poles, and you do it. And then there's this moment where you've done it and you think, well, God, this was great. I'm going to sign up for another 100 mile race. And you still want those serotonin levels to be high and you still want those endocannabinoids and you still want your routine and you still want your tribe. But somehow the second isn't as exciting as the first. You can get to the point where you're running 500 milers a year, where you're running 80 to 90 miles a week as a baseline trying to self-regulate. And then you find that that takes such a devastating toll on the hormonal system of the body. So when we look at, to your point, I don't know that I've ever seen ultramarathon training make someone a, a more complete, full person, but I've seen people on a search to become more full, more complete, more holistic, more whole, more connected, get great benefit through a training mechanism, modality like that. So with young people, I always ask, what is the, sport, what is the training program unrelated to sport? Because most young people who come in here are training for a sport, not for the sport of life. And the question then becomes, what do you do after college or high school? You you do strength training to be a better swimmer. You do strength training to be a better track athlete, but not necessarily to feel better as a person. And if we can build the training program that gets young people inspired to train because it's a physiological prerequisite Mm -hmm. to thrive as a biological organism, then you can choose sports. Now you're playing sports. I think that that's really inspiring as opposed to literally making sport the mechanism for health and then losing it and saying, what do I do?
2: Yeah, especially because on the other side of that, if, what if you get injured? What if you're an athlete in high school, in college, and you get injured? Or even outside of that, maybe you're an adult who plays in a community league, or maybe you you know, run races, that's your that's your passion, you get injured, and you've attached so much of how you feel, who you are, oh, yeah. your identity, your physiology is so attached to this thing And then you can't do it for six weeks, eight weeks, however long it takes you to recover. You know, what am I training for? What is this really doing? And will it absolutely like destroy my mind if I have to change it up for a couple of weeks? Because that's so important to be able to, to be able to change it and understand, okay, well, this is actually at the heart of it. Why I'm actually exercising, why I'm training, why I'm doing these things, because goals are important, but also being a healthy, functioning human is too.
1: And it makes me really wonder, you know, with the, with the next great danger, I see it happen. You can beat the love of learning out of somebody in school, and that's devastating. You can also beat the love of movement out of people, right? You have to win states. You have to get this trophy. You have to do it for the team. You have to do it because it's going to look good on my resume. If I can continue to put out winning teams and someone goes, I just can't wait for this to end, they graduate high school and they go, you know what? I've done. Yeah. So now you've lost the love of learning and movement. And we now have a nation with an almost 50% obesity rate. We have an epidemic in mental health issues. And we look at the, our basic physiology, we've become a stranger to ourselves, And so it seems like if we can be honest, because the last thing you want to teach a generation is to look at something going wrong and say it's going right, because that's a lie. We can look at it and say, well, it's not going right, but hey, we're all trying. It's a work in progress to be human. School's a very new thing for us as a species. Let's try this.
0: <sighs> Let's try this. A lot of the things that you're speaking to, like I see... Sadly, it's like a lot of the times I'll see kids whenever they're about to graduate, they start to coast. And I'm like, and I I often have to grab them by their ears and be like, this is the time of your life. I'm like, this isn't it. You know, uh, I've, I've told several kids that I'm like, this is just the next phase, the next step. This isn't it, you know, because I mean, it is kind of, you know, one of those landmark moments where you're graduating and you think you're an adult. Nobody can tell me anything. Right. But it's just the start. I mean, anyone that's, you know, just getting out of high school would tell you, oh, that's just the beginning of all the fun times. Right. Uh, but Sport is is a very powerful thing because I've seen it make kids who probably would not want to come to school whatsoever participate in school. So I one hundred percent love the opportunity that sports uh, offer to kids and how it can be used in a productive manner to drive kids towards becoming educated and also as a means of education. Because I've had the opportunity to work with tons of kids who have been able to get their schooling paid for at the next level uh, because of their you know sporting. Uh, prowess, so it's it's a really great avenue. But I also have to push people to be aware that it's not the only avenue. It's not the be all end all. Just like I think what we're speaking to today is that we want well balanced human beings that are able to deal with all the different factors that society will throw at us. And the fact is that we have it all within inside of us if we will leverage the proper protocols and uh, methodologies. So just kind of some different things to throw out there. Something I've experienced too, and just thinking about holistic health, sitting in a chair all day, it's sad to watch a kid go from the classroom over to our PE block because I teach in the class and then I'm responsible for training about 65 testosterone filled guys at the same time. Uh, But it's so sad to watch someone who's 14, 15 years old, they can't perform just a body weight squat down to the ground, range of motion lost. Why?
1: Because we sit
0: all day, right? One thing I've adopted myself, my right knee started killing me, like just killing me all the time. I'm always in this position of setting. So what I've adopted is while I work, I make myself just get into these different postures that we would have probably done in our primal stage, like where I'm sitting excuse the language, As to grass, where I'm in a split stance, where I'm in a forward lean, uh, where I'm, I can't remember what they call it, but it's more like the Japanese, your, your heels, you're touching your heels with your uh, yep. with your butt, basically. So just, and, and you get uncomfortable in each of those uh, postural positions. Well, that's the next time to go and switch. And what do you know? My knee feels better. I feel better. I feel more alive. Um, so that's just one from my own experience that I kind of link to that
2: something that we recognize is that as humans, we need to move and how much movement everybody kind of has, you know, they're different, you know, some people move, not at all. Some people move so much. Some people run hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, But I think what I can think back to like phys ed at an early age, I learned I'm not very good at movement as in it doesn't come very easily to me. I wasn't this naturally athletic person. And I can remember, I think it was like the presidential fitness test. I can remember like being up on the back of the uh, basketball hoop. And having to do like hold, like a hang and being like, I'm going to fall onto the, like the bleachers here and not being able to hold myself up because nobody ever taught me how to move. They were just like, well, you're going to do this thing. And then I was just like, well, then I'm bad at movement. I'm bad at athletics. I'm not athletic. Um, athletic. And it took building that love and finding something that like, you know, I was lucky to find that later in my life because I know of so many people who don't. And then what happens down the line is movement gets harder. It gets harder to build that routine, and then you don't feel your best, and so that adds just another barrier to finding that movement. And I think that for people who are athletic, it's hard to or it's hard to remember. It's easy to forget um, what it felt like first finding movement, first having to get fit, quote unquote.
1: And you know, it makes me wonder. You know, if we could remove culture from the story of biology once again without character, um, without it being looked at as a character flaw, what is the full range of motion of a joint? What is physiological resonance? What, what is a relationship between the heart and the lungs and the brain that we can start to get to a point where we can say, okay, this is a physiologically resonant state. And if we can move towards resonance, we can take engage in practices that push us more towards quality sleep, quality movement, and measure it. Exactly. And it isn't a character fault if I can't get into a full depth squat. It's a goal I can work on. But if I decide to remove the idea that that full range of motion exists as a potential for me, I'm letting culture write the story of my physical development. And if I, if I let culture say that, you know, getting four hours of sleep a night for 12 years is an act of heroism as opposed to an absolute unwillingness to meet your biology, exactly. with re, you know, to respect the reality of your biology, then once again, we have to ask if culture writes the story of health, is the culture healthy? And if a culture that isn't healthy is writing the story of health, your entire life you can be written into that script. So one of the things we love to, to ask, you know, young people we work with them is I don't even ask, we just do, we do, we do subtle movement assessments that don't feel clinical. And it's amazing to your point how many cannot even get up on their toes or descend into a squat or control their weight in space or stand on one leg. And if we can start by saying, okay, well, let's understand the foot because the foot should do something when you stand on one leg. Well, if the foot does that, what should the tibia do? What should the femur do? Cool. Where should your thorax be? Now they start to realize that movement is actually an art and it works in systems. And I've never had a young person say, man, I wish we weren't learning this. And Mm -hmm. we were just doing burpees in the mud. The question is always, why am I just learning this now? Yes. Because this is cool. So how do we make learning about the body physically cool and inspiring? Yeah.
2: yeah. And it's so cool when you can have an athlete communicate back to you, or even just like a, a person in the gym communicate back to you like, oh, this is why I did this, or this is what happened when I did this. Because you can see the, the gears are turning. They're like, mm-hmm. I can start to feel this. I start to feel what's happening in my body. You
1: no, know, there's an exercise that we use. We talk about tasting fear and tasting anxiety. We do this with all the students, young and old that we work with. We talk about tasting fear. We say, look, I want you to jump on an airdyne bike. And the environment, by the way, during all of this is Mm non-heavy. Wu-Tang Clan is blasting, doors are open. This isn't some soul-searching, soul-seeking test of metal. jump on a bike, we're going to practice nasal breathing. I want you to bike to a five-second inhale, five-second exhale. And I want you to go no faster than you can maintain that cadence. And I want you to feel what's happening. And I want you to process it, irrespective of psychology, because we can separate out physiology and psychology. They feel what's happening, five second in, five second out. The pace goes down. They feel CO2 rising in their body. We talk about the physiology. We say, okay, for the next 30 seconds, I want you to go five second inhale, five second hold, five second exhale. I want you to feel what's happening. Okay, CO2 is rising. We sometimes put a pulse oximeter on them so they can watch blood oxygen saturation and heart rate. And they say things like, whoa, that's getting hard, but they laugh. They laugh when experiencing the physiology of anxiety. And then finally we have them on a five second inhale, five second hold, five second exhale, five second hold. They're basically doing box breathing on ERG. And they stop and laugh and go, whoa, that bottom hold, man, that's so hard. But they're laughing as they're experiencing the physiology of anxiety and stress. And having the chance to visit Dr. Andrew Huberman's lab years ago um, and look through the virtual reality experiments that they were doing at the physiology of the human anxiety and fear and stress response. You recognize physiology is physiology, CO2 is CO2. And when you can train people to experience states of stress or anxiety, not in cultural terms, but in physiological reality, then they can build the skill in the gym. And now the skill correlates to life. and Now it hits the ground running during the interview, asking someone on a date, taking a big risk. And that's where the rubber has hit the road for us at Physiology First, is actually using the training environments to prepare for life
0: yeah so that that transitions really nicely to the the idea of stress that I would like to jump into with you because you talked earlier about the idea that sometimes we're just a we treat people so fragile, like we want to bubble wrap them too. Like we don't want to do that either because that's you know, creating people that are extremely fragile and just not. Uh, able to deal with dynamic situations, which society requires. Uh, So as far as stress, stress is excitation. I mean, it's literally what tells us how we need to devote our resources. Um, So looking at stress, I've seen a good quote that I'll throw out there. I think you guys shared this. You said whenever stress means anything and everything, it means nothing. And the thing is in the modern day and age, Stress is everywhere if we allow it to be. So the first thing I would like to do is kind of talk about how this generation is perhaps dealing with an overload of stress, which they may be putting on themselves in in, uh, many different situations. But let's first talk about how within this current climate, how stress is just proliferating everywhere um, and how we need to protect ourselves against that. And then let's talk about why it's important to utilize stress in a proper way. You know, I think at
1: every presentation that we give to young people, we've asked some version of the following question. We said, who here thinks that stress is a big issue, a big problem? And maybe by doing that, we're framing it in the negative, but, but we're trying to get a sense of whether it seems like in the general stratosphere conversations, big realm, well. who thinks anxiety is a big deal, a big issue? Every hand goes up to both questions. Stress is a big issue. Anxiety is a big issue. And we'll say, okay, cool. Like who can define stress or anxiety? all hands go down they stay down. And this calm comes over the room where we realize we're talking about a cultural abstraction that we're attaching to every negative life experience. And so, again, you have a word that means anything and nothing. Well, if you wanna build the skill of stress management, you're gonna need some stress. We kind of conceptually get that if we're going to the ground to do a push-up, that there's gonna be a sense of strain. There's gonna be a physical difficulty. We're gonna ask muscles to adapt to the strain in order to what? Either to feel better, look better, perform better, right? be stronger, whatever the reason for doing pushups is, we kind of understand that we're a biological adaptive organism that needs strain in order to be stronger. But the word stress, when you ask people, is stress a good thing or a bad thing? People say, well, it's bad thing." Anxiety, even worse, because now, now it's steeped in kind of stigma from the 1900s. And when we can just begin to say, well, I have, as, an, as a human being, the ability to adapt on purpose. And if I want to adapt to be stronger, I'm going to need some damn stress. So what level, what dose, what timing, what type? Is my relationship to stress proactive? And is it science-based? Because now you can learn so much. I feel like without a coach even now, you can go to the internet and you can find people like Dr. Andrew Huberman and Dr. Andy Galpin. I mean, I, I can shout out so many people who will share with you how to build an exercise program. But is your framework one where you say, I want to embrace stress, I want to eliminate chronic stress, Mm -hmm. and I want to probably upgrade the word anxiety for the 21st century so that it isn't something you have, it's something that you experience as a state, a transient state. And now we're actually then just talking about autonomic nervous system. Now we're talking about high arousal or low arousal. Now we're taking the conversation out of 20th century stigma into 21st century science, and hopefully we're inspiring students to realize you—you you are an adaptive organism, and you are at the wheel of your adaptation. What do you want to be?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, there was this amazing quote, and I'm blanking right now who said it, but they said, you know, if you're stressed about something, it means you care about it. Mm. But the cultural narrative that we have around stress kind of makes us like, well, oh, this stresses me out. You kind of turn away from it or you shut away from it. But if you care about it hopefully you can find the tools that you need to be able to embrace that stress, to take control of that stress so that you can do the thing that you care about deeply.
1: Absolutely. So I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's hard to get people to care about glucocorticoids, right? It's hard to go into the physiology of stress. This is what happens when you subject the body to strain. So I think what you can do with young people, and this is how our approach has been, is we start every seminar and we say, look, I want you just to chill out for like 60 seconds. And I just want you to, i'll do it with you like i just want us all to envision where we are going where we are working to go what a day where you wake up and you feel on fire and you feel connected what that looks like through pure imagery and we're not going to ask you to tell it this isn't an exercise it's a chance to get an idea of what direction you're heading and we do that together and it's not hard to get 40 students to just lie down because they're exhausted and then when we sit up, we tell them, like, look, all the things we're going to share in this, in this seminar, they're only tools to help you get to where you just envisioned. Because you know there's going to be barricades. You know there's going to be barriers. And you're either going to have the skill set to transcend them or leap over them or go right through them, or you're not. And if it were easy to reach goals, everybody would reach their goals. It's, it's really hard. And it seems like the one common skill set that the people that we work with who do reach their goals more consistently than not have is the ability to manage their internal state in chaotic environments. And that means mastering the skill and the art of stress management. And that framework then sets it up where they go, okay, I want that for me, not because you're telling me I'm stressed out, because I have a goal I care about, and I want to reach
0: it. A lot of things you're saying, there are kind of things I had bullet points for, like a sense of control is very important in being able to control a stressor. Now I've seen it referenced that it depends on if it's a low to moderate to a high stressor. But the thing is, most stressors that we're dealing with are low to moderate and we seem to make them the end of the world, perhaps sometimes. Uh, And we make a lot of paper tigers. uh, And, you know, we're speaking to a generation that spends a lot of time looking at social media and all these other things like the power of social media is great i never would have connected with you guys i wouldn't be talking to you on zoom right now like there's nothing wrong with that what's wrong is whenever you create these reflexive autonomic responses to like expectations about comments or people liking posts or what someone else said like I think about that a lot, too, because kids are on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram so often. And like this stress that you're placing on yourself for like social acceptance with people you don't even hardly know. Uh, That's something that I've thought about a lot as well. Um, And cognitive flexibility is something else that you were kind of pushing towards there as well. This idea that I've heard this referenced uh, as well the way you look at a situation is actually going to determine your physiological response to the situation. Uh, Especially like with exercise, I could take someone and let's say they don't like running. I'm not a big running person. So the 100 mile marathon, you said that would be torture to me, right? Uh, So I probably wouldn't derive very much pleasure from it, but a good heavy deadlift, I would enjoy that. Or, you know, like a a workout in the weight room, I would enjoy that. So I think finding the proper interest and stressors to put towards individuals is important as well, because how they choose to frame it is actually going to determine their physiological response as well, correct? Absolutely. I mean, you, you gave a great example fairly
1: recently from um, from uh, Stanford, Crum. right? Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. So this is an amazing experiment because um, it just illustrated exactly what you just said. So it was Dr. Aliyah Crum from Stanford University. And what she did is she had um, subjects come in, and they came in at two separate times and they were given the same milkshake. So, this milkshake was 320 calories, but they were told at one point that it was a sensible, skinny milkshake that was only 140 calories. And then at another time, it was like an indulgent 600 calorie milkshake. It was the same milkshake the entire time. But what happened is they actually had a different release of, um, of chemicals that actually slow or speed up the metabolism. And so when people thought that they were having the skinny milkshake, they actually slowed their metabolism down. They almost like, you know, went into this, like not starvation state, but this put conserve, um, conserving state versus when they thought they were indulging, they had to speed that metabolism up. They're just like, I need to build their, burn this off. And it just really showed how big, a role mindset plays in how our bodies react.
1: And then I think there's this other side to the coin where we've been taught for so long, mind over matter, mindset is everything, right? And it's like, well, okay, if you're in a state of chronic physiological dysregulation with no plan out of dysregulation, with your mindset, you will be fighting your biology for the remainder of your life. So if we take a student who's hyperventilating throughout the day, under micronutrient deficient, completely sedentary and exhausted, not meeting their, their body's basic needs. And we tell them, well, you know, toughen up mentally, you can do it. Some people will, but it will be this adversarial relationship with your own physiology. So I feel like, and I would love your thoughts on this. I feel like in a lot of the sport training community and and, and different performance training communities, prior to 2020, there was a lot more of HTFU, you know, harden the F up, wake up, go get it, kill it. You know, be, you know, you. And I think that what I think changed is an infusion and in empathy because we all felt so lost during the pandemic. And we all felt what it was like to put on multiple white belts again. And maybe we universally realized that people aren't lazy. People haven't been given a toolkit or a skill set or or an inform- or a, a incentive structure or any route towards feeling their best. And it almost seems like the new narrative isn't, you know be harder and subdue the body. And it isn't be fragile and, or otherwise you'll burn out. It's okay. How do we, how do we build scales for the 21st century? And what would it be like to build a mental fitness program where things like creativity, adaptability, flexibility, anti-fragility, compassion, creativity were skills that we built together. So with our board members, one of them being a 15-year-old student by the name of Ethan Smith, who is incredible, Amazing. we've been building out this mental fitness categories or these mental fitness categories so that we can wake up and train them and make progress in different areas that that this literature has shown to be beneficial. And now you're waking up and you're training mental fitness with a purpose in a way that means something. And then you, then you can compound that with the deadlift and the breathing exercise. And now hopefully we're actually training the mind and body, not just training the mind to subdue the body that's sort of screaming
0: for resonance. Absolutely. And it's. I love to teach people to push themselves, but there's a point to like where you have to tell people that <laughs> all things in moderation in and honesty, you, you have to find that balance. Because if you don't, if every day is a max deadlift session, sometimes you need to get outside and you need to run. Sometimes people who run, they need to lift, like kind of speaking towards that balance uh, that we were referencing earlier. And to me, that can keep you away from chronic Uh, issues uh, in both your body, bodily structure and in also in the application of stress. Because if you go max every single day, it's just not beneficial. Like you begin to become numb to it. Right. And it doesn't have that stimulus uh, that you would hope that it would have. So short term stress is great. And applying the, applying the correct amount. Like, uh, I love the feed the cat system with coach Tony Holler because he always preaches towards minimum effective dose, which I think you guys would uh, really enjoy finding the appropriate dose of a really high stimulus to really drive, uh, adaptations. He's really big on sprinting and not mindless, uh, fatigue, you know, so that's just something that was uh, standing out to me there. But yeah, the idea is short term stress is beneficial. Chronic stress is where things begin to fall apart. uh, And to where you begin to see these issues, these diseases, these things begin to, you know, come into fruition within society. So they begin to you begin to see obesity, and you begin to see diabetes and cancer and all these different things, because people are dealing with chronic stressors, which have never been taken care of, like we're referencing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we ask, you know,
1: if we can give the next generation the tools to, to embrace the positive stress, and if we can build, I go back to this concept of intergenerational. When we When we partner with schools, for example, our school district partnerships include information for all the parents, all the teachers, all the administrators, all the students, so that they can turn key information into the classroom and so that students aren't fighting an uphill battle at home. Right, where they learn a really cool breathing exercise to mitigate stress and anxiety. They get interested in physical fitness. Okay, how, how are we universally scaling that? Because a culture of health, is, is, it's, it's hard to build. But I was talking to someone the other day and we were mentioning, you know, in communities that have fitness infrastructure here in, in Portland, Maine, where we actually you know, we live, our gyms in Freeport, you know, there's a pull up bar in the middle of the local running track, the local um, running route. And the community will come together around health. There's a new sauna in portland it's becoming a hot spot Mm -hmm. so it's almost like when you put it there people gravitate because they neurologically they go i don't know why man but i feel really good when i do this and when it isn't there we'll look for reward and we'll look for feeling good in any mechanism when that mechanism is purely technological now you run into the issues that you just talked about where i have to get dopamine somewhere you know i have to meet my body's needs for excitation motivation Creation, connection, and the more that we can put physical infrastructure to do that in a world where it's going to be a lot less present. I mean, I think a quarter of gyms went under uh, since 2020, a quarter of U.S. gyms. So those are the things that used to be in the neighborhood that someone could integrate into. Now we're going to look at the rise of technologies like Oculus and Meta, and are more people using Oculus for fitness than ever. And it's very early in that exponential process. So ultimately, how do we keep people physically training together in a way that's empowering over the the lifespan? That's the question that we we seek to work to produce an answer to through our ambassador program where people take our curriculum into the neighborhood and off of Instagram.
2: Yeah, because also, I mean, at a certain point, like we're all talking about, you know, running or deadlifts or strength training. At a certain point, you've, you've learned that for yourself. You've probably gotten really, really fit. What's the next step? It's sharing it with somebody else and bringing somebody else on that journey with you um, and helping them along that journey because you have this awesome opportunity to teach them something about themselves that's going to take them so much further and hopefully they pass it along too.
1: I really wonder if because purpose wasn't embedded in the process, if we're going to run into two different types of fitness as we move forward, people who self-optimize into oblivion alone <laughs> I wonder why it isn't working. You're sleeping in a you know cryogenic freezer. You're sleeping, you're hanging out upside down. You're eating nothing but coconut oil. You're you know like <laughs> three really terrible examples. If anybody's listening, I'm being facetious. Don't do either of those things. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. Getting into the self-optimization route and saying maybe what you needed to do to feel optimal was teach a young person what you wish someone taught you earlier. Maybe it's maybe it's not going to the float tank for the third time this week. Maybe it's teaching a young person to breathe. Maybe purpose and mentorship and intergenerational learning is the new 21st century fitness. If we can be the, carry the information to the community.
0: My fitness time is like my personal time. I always tell the kids, like if they're hanging around, like, okay, this is my personal time. Uh, it's like my one hour block, but I spend so much time watching them move and actually moving and doing things. I wouldn't do like bounding and stuff uh, to show them uh, and to keep them moving in the right way. So it's, you're right. I, I derive a lot of pleasure from being able to show kids how to move effectively and through a variety of means. It makes me try different things too. So the last thing I'd like to talk to you guys about is the idea of, Neuroplasticity, because if this has all been on the focus of the pursuit of learning, if you were to ask me and to pushing yourself, and I just want to kind of read something to get us framed on this that neuroplasticity is basically just a reorganization of connections. And in order to reorganize, you have to be willing to be moved from a particular point. So I think one of the things that we've been speaking about is that we need to allow creativity within the classroom, we need to allow opportunity for a voice for those uh, within our setting Uh, and then we need to allow them to paint their own landscapes because my landscape looks different than your landscape looks and all of them can coexist at the same time uh, in a beneficial manner. So a lot of the things we've been speaking to really speak to that. So let's talk a little bit about neuroplasticity and then some protocols or ideas that we can bring into the classroom and into the physical uh, education setting that can push for higher rates of learning and experience experience.
1: Well, I wonder if the neuroplasticity conversation, you know, Norman Doidge, who wrote the amazing book, How the Brain Changes, or How the Brain Changes Itself, the exact title, we said, you know, the, the new science of neuroplasticity should fundamentally re, us forces to reimagine all of education. And I think what we run into when we talk about neuroplasticity right now is you run into the identity issue because there's a cultural narrative that says you are who you are. Maybe it even says you are enough as you are. And the fundamentally beautiful thing about the human brain is it's the only system that can change itself completely. That's what learning is. So we can be who we are, or we can become someone else, or we can become a more you know, advanced version of ourselves in certain areas. And I think that the biggest driver for plasticity, and just according to the literature, is that you have the ability to pay deep attention, deep focus towards something you care deeply about. And that that becomes, that's actually the mechanism that allows adults to retrieve a level of plasticity that we've been taught that we lose in in childhood. The human brain is neuroplastic until we die. And so when we can fundamentally ask the question, okay, who am I? What parts of me are core to me? And what parts of me can I look at as very adaptable? You can understand that the power to change your brain is the power to change yourself. Mm -hmm. It's the power to look at the science of learning and say, I may not be a good learner or a bad learner. I may not have the skill set for optimal learning based on the science of how humans learn. And I wonder if it removes so many of the character judgments and if it doesn't open the doors to ultimate peak human potential by saying you have this supercomputer and you can learn to code on it and you could write the story of your life. What do you want to write?
2: Yeah, 100%. And I think when it comes down to like, you know, a belief system or values that you're super attached to because it defines your identity, then you shut the door to those opportunities. You know, there's an opportunity to learn something new that might change your mind. And the first step is that you have to be open to it. The second step is that you always have to, David was mentioning, you know, we kind of ran into a moment where we all had to put a white belt back on in different ways. And that's part of life and putting yourself into those situations more and more is going to increase your ability to continually adapt to, you know, build that skill of neuroplasticity, build that skill of learning. And I think at a certain point, you know, you don't go, you know, start taking tennis lessons or pottery lessons or trying to acquire a new skill. So you stop that adaptive process. So it makes it so much harder to start again.
1: Yeah, and I really wonder, you know, one of the things that's very hard to get people excited about, and I would love your insights on this, And the students who hang out here by nature are self-selecting. They choose to hang out at a neuroscience center um, after school and sit in a lobster tank full of ice. And it's not everybody, but once students do it and they realize like, okay, because we've made it culturally relevant to be here. Again, the music that they listen to is the music that's on. We're all jumping in the ice tank, we're doing this. Now it's like, okay, there's something to all this brain stuff like learning about my brain. But I feel like with a lot of people, there's a hesitation because it ultimately forces you to confront your own identity. What am I if I'm neurons and synapses and wetware? What am I if I'm a system of nerves and neural circuitry? What am I if I'm a biological organism and consciousness is the manifestation of something that is largely material? Is that true? Well, we don't know. And that's the fundamental question of our time is what does the science of the brain and body teach us about the potentials for what creates a conscious existence? Now you have philosophy embedded into neuroscience. It's a lot to unpack. I don't know many people who want to be a a brain operating a meat machine. And fortunately we're not, we're integrated, right? So I think the question becomes, how do you make the science of the brain as accessible and related to goals? Because we're entering a period of accelerated learning about how we learn what we are and what the human brain is and does. And the only thing that can stop us from capitalizing on that knowledge is a kind of fear of it threatening the structure of our identity Mm -hmm. or simply
0: not knowing that the knowledge exists. I can speak again personally to like, I've just begun to to fast frequently in the last couple of months. And I've, I would be the last guy you would think would do it. Right. Because like I spoke to, I've liked to lift weights. I think you need to eat, eat, eat. Right. But I've just seen so many benefits both cognitively and actually within my strength numbers from properly managing my eating windows. And I was like, I'll try it out. Okay. Because I do want to be healthier and I don't, you know, it's not all just about lifting the max amount of weight. So I tried it out and lo and behold, I'm becoming stronger uh, and I feel younger and I feel better and I feel more alive whenever I wake up. And it's just so easy to leverage little things like that. But if I had not been willing to move my landscape into the way I viewed things and open myself up to that, then I never would have learned that my body responds better to eating in that way. I never would have aligned my body to act in that way and and one of the things that i've seen referenced as far as neuroplasticity is the fact that you do need to have some sense of agitation or stress be present in the moment to kind of show me that this is something that i need to divert my attention to this is something noteworthy because too little stress again is boredom too much is overwhelming uh, and compounding right so uh I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that and I want to talk about perhaps the structuring of the overall classroom setting and periods of learning uh, because I've familiarized myself with the ultradian rhythm, 90 minutes typically, and then you need downtime and then it will uptick because we are just a cycle as well. If we're talking about physiology today, we, we live basically a continuous cycle. That was one of the most explosive things whenever I realized that, wow, we're a continuous cycle, right? So let's talk a little bit about that what are some better ways to perhaps leverage learning sessions? Cause I feel like they're so long compounding, they become boring and there's no learning, right?
2: Yeah. So I'll actually speak to that because um, like I said, uh, I'm a student getting my doctorate in physical therapy and it's actually an accelerated program. So we're trying to learn a lot more in a lot less time. Um, and so I really follow um, the non-sleep deep rest protocols that were presented by Dr. Andrew Huberman. And it was that moment of, okay, wow. Like I feel like, especially in high school, especially in college, I used to just like, you know, look at information, 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 and never take that moment for my brain to actually be able to like soak up that information. A lot of that came from understanding, like, how do we actually integrate information from our short-term to our long-term memories? And a lot of that comes from being able to take a break and take a rest. And so early on in my um, DPT program, Andrew Huberman uh, posted, you know, three steps to learning and uh, actually integrating the information that you're reading. One of the biggest things was taking a pause. And he said, it's every 100 seconds about every 100 seconds of reading or studying, whatever it is that you're doing, take a 10 second pause. What happens to that 10 seconds pause is that information plays back in your mind about, I think it was a 20 times speed. And so you're actually able to start taking that in and then learning the importance of sleep which David can talk a little bit about, but the importance of, okay, so maybe I do the 100 seconds on the 10 seconds rest. And then something like you said, doing a 90 minute full Mm -hmm. session and taking 20 minutes to focus on my breathing, to turn off the mind of like studying and get into kind of relaxing a little bit so that I can actually integrate that information in my brain. And then long-term is my sleep quality good? Am I actually, am I actually doing the things that I need to do to make sure that my brain is able to intake all of this information? And I feel like that's never taught. It's always kind of told like, you know, study until you're done. And so these things that I used to have to read three mm. times, four times, five times over and over again to make sure it was in my mind, I actually could go over like twice, maybe three times and be ready for that exam.
1: Yeah. You know, an analogy that we use a lot is so we have a blacktop parking lot out here and then we have a big grassy front lawn. And we'll always say to students, look, we can, if we're going to plant a garden, one of those is optimal fertile soil. One of those has a chance. And we can say we're going to be hard-headed. We are going to make this blacktop into a thriving garden. We're going to water these seeds. But it's blacktop, man. Like, clearly, that would be more fertile soil, right? And another analogy that we use is if I can sharpen my axe or I can whack the tree with a blunt stick for the next 10 hours as the sign of work ethic. And now that the new science of learning shows us things like what Lex just talked about, you know, how do we understand how much learning happens in the, during sleep? The brain is trying to figure out what memories can come with me from yesterday to today. Because I can't possibly remember the license plate of the guy driving in front of me and what the person in front of me, you know, at the coffee shop was wearing, it's too much. So say what's going to make it into the long-term storage system? Now prioritizing sleep, now prioritizing breathing, now prioritizing non-sleep deep rest, doesn't help learning, it is learning. We had a, um, a Dr. Jose Herrero, a partner of ours in neuroscience come recently to speak here at our center. We're gonna be engaging in uh, a pilot study around breathing in the brain and long-term plasticity. And it was interesting because some students were trying to get their friends to come. And one of the counter arguments to coming was, well, I have to study. We thought it's almost like, well, there's a chance to come to the axe sharpening contest, meaning if you want to study less, more effectively, you have to understand the structure uh, that processes information and integrates it into memory. But that's, again, overwhelming, and it doesn't get rewarded by the traditional school system. You don't get points for saying, I went to a neuroscience class on breathing in the brain and expedited learning and cognitive enhancement. Mm-hmm. So what gets graded gets measured. And maybe what you had to show is that you, you you understood the quadratic formula or something, as opposed to I understood the mechanism for processing that information and making sure it stayed with me beyond the moment. For the tests in school, the tests of life. So, I think this key element of neuroplasticity is are we excited about the art of learning? In which case, there's purpose, deep focus, and potential urgency. And if we take that out, we unplug it, we unplug the love of learning, we can do all of the, the protocols. But ultimately, we're back on the blacktop.
0: Yeah. And just kind of one final thing to add there. I want for teenagers and adolescents to realize you're at the most plastic state that you'll ever be in your life. I mean, whenever you're born, of course, you're extremely plastic. And we lose so many different synapses along the way. And it's just natural, right? That's not a bad thing. We don't lose them because of that. It's just natural. But they, I just want for young people to realize that you're the most plastic and most pliable that you will ever be. And that's not to mean that someone my age, 30, 40, 50 years old, can't change. They can't. But uh, you, you see kids all the time shoulders hunched over i'm tired i it's it's like i'm full of more life than them sometimes and i'm like i'm 30 years old but it's just because so many things that we've spoke to today pass over their head. They're not empowered. They don't realize those different things. But if if teenagers and adolescents would just realize that you're in the most powerful moment of your life, that you have the opportunity to to make your build your own house essentially. Uh, and you're going to live in that house for the remainder of your life, right? But you're so plastic and pliable in that moment. That's just one thing I wanted to kind of mention there because it's that turning point in your life. And sometimes people never realize and then sometimes people realize later, but man, so much untapped potential and that's why I think you guys have probably begun the process that you've begun because there's so much untapped potential out there uh, mm-hmm. and there's so much the field is ripe uh, like you spoke to it's not a black top right it's only a black top if we make it a black top so I'm just gonna allow you guys to kind of say your your final uh, words on this you're speaking to the youth of this day and age, what, what are you guys offering with physiology first and, you know, where can people find you as well? So just kind of in passing one of your last things, speaking to the youth, what you guys offer and then where people can find you so they can get more involved with this process.
1: You know, we would just say to young people, you know, you are so infinitely powerful. You are infinitely powerful. And if the world outside isn't the world that you like to see or you want to see, it's going to be you who shapes it. There is no one else. You are either in the driver's seat of your life or you're in the passenger seat. And from the passenger seat, it's easy to point out, say, I don't like the view. But if you're in the driver's seat, man, you are literally becoming the leader of your community, your nation, and if that's the story that you're integrating into, because if it isn't, if you're not a part of your nation, if you're not a part of your community, if you're not a part of a story, and you're an island unto yourself, all of the breathing and exercise and protocols and practices will never produce the kind of interconnected purpose that comes from integrating into a story about building the future. So all the things we talked about today, why do they matter? Well, because you have someone that you're working to be right now. And for you to get there, you're going to need tools. We all need tools. And these are universal tools embedded in our physiology. So if you can access them through that lens of building a future that inspires you, man, you can't be stopped. And if you love learning, you cannot be stopped. And our goal is to scale a love for learning and a skill set through Physiology First University. So with our research, we can show schools, why is it important to prioritize physiology-based learning? And we can scale the research right to the students. Through our partnerships with schools, we can embed this into the neighborhood, into the district, into the classroom. And through a decentralized approach to helping young people learn about themselves first, they have a free platform at physiologyfirstuniversity.org that they can access. We have live learning experiences, online courses, opportunities to connect, to breathe, to train, and ultimately to scale campuses like ours is the goal where there's a hub for community, for people to actually intergenerationally learn about each other and learn with each other for the long haul, and you're actually building lifelong learning into the infrastructure.
0: Awesome. Man, it, it's been a pleasure to sit down with with both of you guys. i um, so glad that you're both able to be on and share your unique perspectives. And I'll just say, these are things that I've been kicking around in my mind for some time, as far as many of the things that we've referenced today. The frustrations of you know trying to inspire the youth of our generation, the frustrations of coming off of COVID lockdowns and uncertainties, and, and all these uncertain times that we have painted ourselves to be In right now. Uh, Perhaps they are uncertain. It's it's the way that we frame it. But my point is, I love what you guys are offering because it's something that I've been kicking around in my head, things that I've been questioning as an educator, uh, as a physical education uh, teacher as well. Um, So I love what you guys offer. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day. It's truly been a pleasure. A little bit different than my normal talk, but if you can't leverage your body you you can't perform. So I, I love all the different things that we've talked about, and learning is the most worthwhile pursuit, in my opinion.
2: Well, thank you so much for connecting with us today. This is amazing.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If this sparked your interest, make sure to check the show notes in order to see more of the offerings of Physiology First. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to keep up with the latest content. And on Apple, you can leave the podcast up to a five star rating as well as a review. If you feel led to do so.